0: Victor A. Lopez-Carmen is a Dakota and Yaqui writer, health advocate, and medical student at Harvard Medical School. He is co-founder of the OES pre-medical program at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, which supports Indigenous community and tribal college students pursuing healthcare education. He also founded Translations for Our Nations, a grant-funded initiative that translated accurate COVID-19 information into over 40 Indigenous languages from over 20 different countries. For his work, he has been featured on the Forbes 30 Under 30 and Native American 40
1: Under 40 lists. Victor Lopez-Garman, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So You know, did you find peace when you took on your ancestral role? Because you've spoken of a certain wildness in your spirit growing up. And I think, you know, many of us go through this and we learn to ride that wave and go through and pass beyond it. Because when we hear you speak, you're a natural leader.
2: Yeah, I mean, I found peace in being, being my full self, being indigenous wherever I go. Often they say, and you hear this. In a lot of dialogue in today's society, you have to walk in two worlds as a indigenous person, but I try to push past that and really embody myself and say, Hey, you can be indigenous no matter where you go. You don't have to walk in two worlds. You can take your full self in any context. And sometimes that may cause some conflict, obviously, because we're still trying to maintain our indigenous identity in today's society, and sometimes it's not always easy, but I find some peace in being true to myself and being true to, to what my ancestors were as well. And for me to take my culture and our traditions everywhere I go, I found that that gives me a lot of strength to get through difficult moments in life. And that, that gives me some peace as well.
1: Yes, and you've spoken and written about this seventh generation ethic, and I always like to maintain the positivity, which we get so much from your leadership and your speaking, but it's hard for many of us to even imagine seven generations down the line now with the way the world is.
2: Yeah, it can be very difficult, and it's not, when we say seven generations, it's also our generations are longer from grandparent to grandparent. It's not the Western idea of one generation. So it's even longer than most people would know. And the thing is, it does take practice. It does take true intention, not only individually, but societal community intention. It has to be built into the structure of a community, of a country, of a tribe. And for our tribes, for my tribe, that was built into our structure. It was built into the way that we lived. And a lot of people think it's this individual thing that you're making decisions every day, like to recycle. And that's for the seventh generation, which, you know, that can be true as well. But it's much more systemic and thoughtful than that. It's at a very, very high level. And we have a lot of records of our leaders of indigenous peoples, councils, even prior to colonization. Or when they would meet, they would discuss future generations and specifically like how their actions that they were taking, for instance, actions they would take on where to move that year or actions they would take on whether to engage in conflict, even during colonization on whether to enter into a treaty with the United States government, how would that impact future generations from the tribe? And they would really have a discussion on that. And that's the level that it needs to be built into in my opinion, into the way that we formulate policies today. There always has to be a place in the discussion where we say, stop. Let's think about how this impacts those future generations. Let's, let's really discuss this. Let's let's really analyze this. Because if we don't do that, it's just going to go down to the individual level and not be at the systemic level that we need it to be for it to work.
1: Yes. I mean, the political systems, of course, vary from country to country, but in America, where we see a lot now. But everywhere, there's just the politicians wanting to win and wanting to tear down what's been achieved previously. It's not thinking, as you say, intergenerationally. That maybe we can discuss it a little bit later. But first, just tell us where you come from, the two tribes that you come from.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, I was raised in Tucson, Arizona, which is where the Yaqui tribe is. My mom is Yaqui, and she's Mexican, Irish, and Spanish as well. So I'm, i come from a mixed ancestry, but I was raised Yaqui. you know, in ceremonies, my mom worked for the tribe. It was pretty much everything that I knew, always surrounded by community there, Yaquis, and being on the reservation, babysat, going to, to take care, running around the reservation, the kids during ceremonies. And it's just how I grew up and then I also grew up, you know, fairly engrossed in my Dakota side. My dad is Dakota and uh, I'm a member from him. I guess I'm formally enrolled in the Crow Creek Sioux tribe. And uh, he took us to ceremonies as well, to a couple different ceremonies from our tribe and always really felt close to that. Both my parents, when I was younger, were involved in indigenous activism. My mom and my dad would often go to protests. They would organize movements. They'd be part of multilateral indigenous people's movements, not only nationally, but internationally that were operating at the grassroots level. Activism is a, it's a tradition in my family for indigenous rights. I had aunts and uncles that were very involved as well. So as a kid, I was often at those protests. I was often running around as a little native kid with all the other little native kids, while parents would be in meetings, disgusting you know, how to move forward, discussing indigenous rights and we would be there in that environment. And I think that that also really made an impact on me from a young age that just to see everyone around me working together to try to make life better for indigenous peoples that really had an impact on me. So yeah, that's how I grew up and also while I'm indigenous and I'm a member of, of a tribe and of another indigenous community. I also feel connected to other parts of my ancestry too, like my Irish side, which I'm learning more about. And I grew up pretty involved in my Mexican ancestry and culture as well, being Tucson, high Mexican population, going to quinceañeras and often going to Mexico as well as a kid because the Yaqui tribe is on both sides of the border. So we have eight villages in Mexico that, that I would grow up going to as well and and cities to visit family across the border.
1: So this seems like these transcultural conversations that you are having from the time you were playing as a young boy kind of prepare you to be a co-chair that you presently are of the UN Global Indigenous Youth Caucus.
2: It exposed me from a young age that this issue is global, that indigenous peoples' rights is a global issue from, I didn't know the extent as a little kid, I didn't know that indigenous peoples were I guess, formally in 90 different countries, but I, I grew up at some points going to Latin America. One time my mom, you know, she was working with indigenous peoples in Guatemala uh, in Ecuador. And so I knew that there were indigenous peoples at the very least in the Americas and yeah. And then getting to see them work with all of them, I think it taught me that this issue is global and indigenous solidarity between different indigenous peoples in different countries is so important in making progress.
1: And tell us about some of the priorities and initiatives at the caucus.
2: Well, the caucus was founded in 2005 and the main goal really was to to have indigenous youth give them a voice at the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, which is a UN a gathering that takes place annually. It's the largest gathering of indigenous peoples in the UN system. So that's the official, the Global Indigenous Youth Caucus is the official caucus of that gathering. That's the very basic level. And we give statements representing the voices of indigenous youth from every world region, and uh, usually we have anywhere from like 50 to a hundred indigenous youth leaders there that are on site, but we do get involved in other parts of the UN as well. And we've been getting more involved, like in the the COP, like climate change conventions, food and agriculture organization, convenings, the world food forum and, and different, you know, other avenues within the UN system that can also benefit from indigenous peoples being there, like the, the UN youth forum, for instance. And so we're working with a lot of different UN agencies and different UN gatherings and convenings to try to help Indigenous youth to bring their voices forward in those places so that we're represented.
1: And you spoke on the food forums, and of course, your focus is on medicine and also bringing together Indigenous medicine or traditional medicine and Western medicine and just bring health to your community. Just tell us a little bit about those initiatives, and particularly during COVID as well, you had a translations for our nations.
2: So the translations, it was a project that, that kind of span out of of my experience as an indigenous medical student at Harvard when the pandemic hit. And I wondered immediately all this information, how are indigenous peoples in the world who still the majority in in some communities where the majority of people only speak their indigenous language? How are they understanding all of this information? And my tribe in Mexico, most people there still speak Yaqui. There's some Spanish as well, but A lot of the elders and a lot of the kids will only speak Yaki. So what they started doing was finding ways to translate the information and put it on local radio stations in Yaki, in the Yaki language. And that was working quite well for my child. And I thought, no, can we expand that? Can we do something to help facilitate that on a wider level? So we put out a call. It was on Facebook, on on Twitter where people could sign up who, indigenous peoples who spoke their language, but also spoke another major world language. We said, will you help translate COVID-19 information into your indigenous language? And we got a team of Harvard medical doctors, students, physicians to work with those translators and to work with us to make them accurate. And we got a team of indigenous community members who got together and, and asked themselves, what are the most important things that indigenous peoples should know right now. And some of the most important things were obviously, how does the virus work? You know, how do you avoid it? How do you keep yourself safe, but also culturally competent versions of that. For instance, a lot of indigenous communities didn't have access to running water. How are they going to wash their hands? They might have to travel miles to get water and a lot of the directions showed a picture of someone washing in a regular bathroom sink or so we wanted to make stuff that they knew was for them that people were looking out for them that they knew their context ceremonies as well we created content for ceremonies and and how to do them safely and that some of them might need to be postponed or canceled that's up to the community but Here's some of the considerations they should take into place. Can they put on masks at ceremony and things like traditional funerals and, and stuff like that, we really wanted to, to give indigenous peoples access to culturally competent information on COVID-19. And so that's what we did. And we found grants to pay the translators, which was really cool. I think a lot of indigenous peoples, like they end up using their expertise and not really getting paid for it and we were able to actually compensate for them for their time and expertise with their indigenous language. So we were really happy about that too.
1: It's beautiful that you could really save lives and also respect the traditions, because I, I know that that's difficult and I don't know the numbers exactly about how within America and within other indigenous communities, I don't know what the percentage of deaths to COVID.
2: Well, with COVID in the US, Native Americans had the highest death rates and the highest hospitalization rates. And their lifespan decreased more than any other race. So that's just in the U.S. You know, I'm assuming you might see similar patterns in other parts of the world, but I can't say for sure.
1: Yes. And it's surprising, too. In the Amazon, it passed through and you think, oh, it's protected. You know, it's isolated. But then when COVID enters in, it can devastate. So Yeah. yeah. Yeah it's beautiful that you identified that and you're able to spread knowledge. And I know you have other medical initiatives promoting. It can be a little bit difficult for Native communities to maybe feel that the medical profession is one that's open to them. I want to discuss that. I think following on from discussion of languages, Maureen would like to come in and ask some questions on that. Sure. Yes. So with Translations for our nations. I know
0: grammar and translation resources for indigenous languages tend to be really, really scarce. So I was wondering how you were able to bridge gaps like that, especially in terms of ideas that that weren't really concepts before the pandemic, like social distancing, that wasn't a concept before we had to do it.
2: Yeah, I think the most important part was community engagement, bringing in indigenous peoples and asking them what they felt would help their communities the most. And finding ways to translate, integrate the science into that because community engagement, I feel in public health and health literacy is one of the most important pieces, because if you just throw facts at them, it might not apply to their everyday situations. So to make it the most effective has to be integrated in their real lives on the ground, so that was one of the most important things. And then I think it took a lot of advocacy as well, you know, getting people to understand the issue. Cause a lot of indigenous languages were left behind in a lot of the, the mainstream responses and to, to get people to sort of understand the landscape around indigenous languages and how indigenous languages are so integral to indigenous health and, and for so many different reasons. And that first of all, a lot of them are at risk and a lot of indigenous peoples also, I think when they have information in their languages. That will improve the trust in the information that they're getting. And so getting people, everyday non-Indigenous people to become allies and to support this cause and, and what we were doing, I think was also really integral to to getting that done.
0: A common theme that we're seeing here is the importance of the native language or being spoken to in your own indigenous language. And to bring it back to what you were talking about before about intergenerational values and intelligence, you've spoken about how a key part of that is storytelling, specifically in the native language. So, you know, like, why stipulate that? What is being told in a native language add to an intergenerational story or intergenerational heritage?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, you take. For instance, my tribe, you could take any tribe, but take my tribe. The Oceti Shakongi, which is made up of the Dakota and Lakota, otherwise known as the Great Sioux Nation. We've been on the land that we're on for thousands and thousands of years, uh, at least 10,000 years, if not more. Keep, they keep getting it pushed back. Like every new discovery they make pushes it back, back. And they've even made a discovery. They found that we were here before the Bering Strait theory was supposedly you know, to take place. So they've just now disproven the Bering Strait theory. So we've been here for thousands of years and we've developed a language during that time. So integrated into the language is so much knowledge about how to live in our traditional territories. In our traditional territories, our language developed. And because of that, our culture is so embedded within the language and the land. It's almost interconnected with it, with the different animals that live there, the different species, the plants, all our metaphors have something to do with the land that we've been on and because we're so connected to it and it's part of our spirituality as well. When we say intergenerational values are in our language, that's part of it because when we're speaking our language, it's passing on our culture, it's passing on that connection that we have to our ancestors on the land. It's passing on how to live on the land. It's passing on all the methods and the science that we've developed for thousands of years of how things work on the land. For instance, embedded in our language are various principles of how nature works that science knows today of different, you know, seasons of different things that grow at certain times of different things that are poisonous that we stay away from of different ways that help us to live. And, and that came from our ancestors. So that's that sort of intergenerational aspect. It's not just words, it's our culture, it's our spirituality, it's our survival. And when we lose our language, we're losing all of that information, all of the information of traditional ecological knowledge within our language. And they've shown that indigenous languages are connected to planetary health and to climate change. And when an indigenous community loses their language, the planet takes a huge hit because of all the traditional ecological knowledge that that community's losing, that protects the area that they're in. So like National Geographic, they've shown that 70 to 80% of the biodiversity left on planet earth today of the, all the plants, all the different life forms, 70 to 80% are situated in indigenous territories right now. And we only make up five, around 5% of the global population. So we are literally the way that we operate and the way that we are is literally saving the planet because we're the ones who are still taking care of it. We're still protecting it. And our languages are the things that they, that help us do that.
1: Yeah. Stories are so important. And can you tell us some of those stories, the specific stories, because you're saying about how the stories about the land that you received. And I know that one of your programs is named after your grandfather, I believe, the Mm OES medical program. So just tell us some of those stories.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I often hear stories about how our ancestors protected the land and how they, they really fought for it, you know, and wanted to protect our animal relatives as well. There's a story during the colonial period when we had a treaty between my tribe and the U.S. government and that the Black Hills, which is, you know, it's, it's the heart of our nation. It's one of our sacred sites that that land would be ours. As long as the water ran, as long as the buffalo were there and the grass grew, essentially the U.S. said this, you know, that we signed it and that land was ours. And then miners started moving in because they found gold in the Black Hills. And, you know, they started killing our people. And so our tribal leaders, you know, they started fighting back and then the U.S. military moved in to, to take, they pretty much took the Black Hills and they started fighting us, but we didn't give up. And so our people, it was called the Battle of Little Bighorn and we defeated the U.S. military at that battle and it was to protect the Black Hills for future generations. And it was, you might've heard of General George Custer and his cavalry. The anniversary was, was just like less than a week ago. Uh, and then another battle within the, a week we defeated the U.S. military again to protect our territory. We were the, I, I believe one of the only tribes or a group of tribes that defeated the U.S. military twice within a two week span. And we had allies there that were the Cheyenne, the Arapahoe, the Lakota and Dakota, so we defeated them and. One of our chiefs eyes uh, and was a chief crazy horse, when they rode into battle to, to meet the US soldiers, his war cry was, uh, only the earth lives forever. And to me, that, that's really powerful because it shows what we were fighting for, you know, and that they were willing to die for mother earth to protect it from this, this really nasty mining and the killing of, of the animals and the deforestation they're willing to put their lives on the line for that. And the U.S. government, you know, from our stories and our elders told us they weren't able to defeat us until they started killing our women, our children, and killing elders and massacring in a really non-honorable way. Our elders always tell us that they weren't able to to defeat us ever in an honorable battle until they started targeting the women, children, elders, and starving us by they almost massacred the buffalo to near extinction. They almost you know, made the buffalo go extinct because that was our food source. And that's eventually, our people were starving and that's why, uh, they moved on to the reservation because they didn't have any more food because the government killed all the buffalo. So that's a story that we're still told today. And, you know, we keep in, in our hearts that our ancestors were never defeated honorably. They fought for the earth, they fought for the land to protect it. And that we still have to do that. And today, to this day, we're still fighting for the Black Hills. And we're still carrying on that fight that our ancestors, uh, you know, that our ancestors engaged in.
1: And yes, and so important to hold on to the language, too, because when your land is taken, then that's what you have, just the relationship to each other. You spoke about, of course, your ancestors, and I love this prayer or or thought that you remind yourself of? How are you living up to the dreams of your ancestors?
2: Mm -mm. Yeah, it's so important. We still feel very connected to our ancestors and most indigenous people think about them often. And I've realized this. I asked some some non-indigenous people, how often do you think about your ancestors? Like, let's say 500 years ago. Do you think about them? Do you know who they were? Do you ever consider them and most non-indigenous peoples I ask, they don't, they say, no, they say, don't we, I've hardly ever think about my ancestors past like my, my grandma or great, great grandma, grandfather, but indigenous peoples are always thinking about these people that we came from even like more than a thousand years ago, and I find that to be such a powerful lesson that everyone can take of, of how we live and I'm sure other people do that too. And I'm talking about when I, when I say people I've asked That's mainly white people that, that they don't think about their ancestors in that way. And I think it's also very useful because if your ancestors participated in something that was bad, that's okay. That's not your fault, but it's something that you should think about, about how you ended up where you are. If your ancestors, for instance, were part of the movement of Europeans into westward expansion during colonization. You need to think about that, about how you got here and what that meant for the people that that they were displacing. And what does justice look like? What can you do that maybe, you know, might help turn things around and make things more just? It's not that we're saying it's your fault. It's saying that history happened and thinking about your ancestors and their participation, whatever it was, good or bad, that's important in figuring out how to solve things now and what's your responsibility. And the right thing to do in today's world.
1: Yeah, I think that repressing or refusing to look at history because it's painful to accept our responsibility within it or, or our relationship to it. Um, you can see the anger and conflict boiling up as comes from maybe that refusal to address that. You know, it has to come out some way. And you address before it's really a spiritual journey, whatever our individual faith might be when you think about the environment and our relationship to nature and animals and and human beings. I like to frame it within that question because there's the other side of it where it's being framed as we can make it profitable to incentivize people to do these things that should be second nature. But maybe it's unfashionable to say, but it is a sort of a search that's aligned to spirituality.
2: Well, what do you think in, in your experience, do you feel like there's a connection to the ancestry in that same way as, or do you feel like it's a little bit different? I'm just curious, I wanted to get your perspective on on how people connect to their ancestry where in that way, or how it might be different.
1: I'm in Paris. And so the sense of history is strong here. You know, I can just go a street away and there's Roman ruins. I think history is something that we do remember, but also Maybe not enough, but it's something that's hard. Visually, it's hard to forget. I, f- I feel that there always has to be reconciliation with history. And it's when you speak about the generations, the seven generations and the whole lifespan of a grandparent, I feel that that's something that's really hard to take in. I wonder, is it something that you have to really imagine or do you just feel it almost, I don't want to say like ghosts, but you feel the layers of history on
2: you? That's a really good question. I think... I think it becomes a part of you because when you are in the frame of mind where you're thinking about your ancestors, seven generations ago, where you're thinking about them and everything they did for you and what they went through and that they were thinking of you, it becomes easier for you to say, to sort of feel like that's realistic when you know that they were thinking of you and all the generations were thinking of you. It becomes a flowing, like a river, like you're going to do it for the future generations too. So I think it's, it's something that it doesn't feel as realistic for a lot of people. And I think it's hard for them to conceive of it because it's hard for them to see how it happened for them. When maybe they don't come from communities where that was built in and that's okay. I think this is a good way to live. I'm not saying that You know, everyone needs to do this. We're saying that this is an option that we use that's been shown to be very successful. I mean, I showed you like the 70 to 80% thing, all indigenous peoples that I've come across, they think whether they call it the seven generations or not, they think this way, every single one of them. And I, I think it goes to show like we're the oldest nations that exist on planet earth today. We're way older than most every country on earth today, like thousands of years older. We have the oldest languages, the oldest cultures, we go way back before recorded, anything recorded and we're still here. And that to me, that's the evidence that we're doing something really good. We're doing something right. And so it's just a a way to live. And I think there's the, the potential that it could take a long, like that it's a whole process that needs to stay consistent in a society for it to really work. And we've kind of laid down the foundation to, to really make that realistic for us. And I think if a society builds it in, then, then it can become realistic for them too. But I think every day, you know, maybe challenging yourself to think about your ancestors, challenging yourself to think about the the big decisions that you make and what would make life better for future generations, for for your great, great, great grandkids. What can you do to, to help them? Like for me, I'm going to medical school and I want to go back to my community to, to help make people healthier. And I'm part of the big reason why I'm doing that is because I know that it's going to make those future generations healthier too. And I know that that's how life (laughs) works. We've shown, we've shown that the future generation, the actions they take are the benefits and The really tragic things they go through, they have an impact on us. You talk about intergenerational trauma, uh, intergenerational transfer of wealth. That's a theory that's pretty much been well-proved how last generations that had policies where the U S gave them land, for instance, or capital that their future generations that are living today are much wealthier now and living much healthier. So like that might make it more realistic too for people, but these are just some examples that I think you can use.
0: Victor is perfectly demonstrating the interconnectedness of culture, language, history, religion, and honor within Indigenous communities. This idea of universal prioritization is something that might be foreign to those of us from non-Indigenous background. But as he notes, this way of thinking, new to us, but actually incredibly old, might just be what many of us are missing in the modern day. So as you said, your culture is one that is incredibly ancient. You said that you grew up as part of the Yaqui tribe in Arizona and Mexico. And of course, that's a border that is far younger than the Yaqui tribe or the indigenous communities there. So I was wondering, in your personal experience, visiting sort of both sides and seeing how indigenous communities have been divided in half, how has the sort of imposition of these new borders disrupted life in indigenous communities?
2: So during ceremonies, we often have people coming up from the Mexico side to participate in the ceremonies. And uh, we have a special sort of arrangement with the U.S. Border Patrol to facilitate that. And so people are able to come and go for cultural reasons, um, pretty, pretty easily. So that's a good thing, you know, that we've been able to arrange. And one of the bad things, or one of the more difficult things is the citizenship aspect. So there are a lot of Yaquis, we all come from the same tribe. Some of the Yaquis have U.S. citizenship and some of the Yaquis don't. And that definitely disrupts our flow as a nation and our ability to sort of be in unison with one another. And it creates major differences and, you know, the economic and socio political differences between the U.S. and Mexico as well. I would say that the people in our tribe who are in Mexico are definitely poorer than the people in the tribe that are in Arizona. So there's a, there's differences there in quality of life, but they also have stronger language, which is interesting. In Arizona on the reservation, yeah, we have Yaqui speakers. In the villages in Mexico, everyone is a Yaqui speaker. And they still live in traditional homes too. They don't live in, in US style, like constructed homes. They still use the traditional style of housing, which is using these branches called cariso. And they build the homes like that. And so they still live traditionally. And so there, there are differences. And it's interesting to me that the Yaquis in the U.S., you know, that we, we still have our culture and our ceremonies, but, you know, that we're not living, I would say, as traditionally as the Yaquis in Mexico, which I'm glad that part of our tribe still has that and that they've kept that. I've seen Yaqui from Mexico get deported back to Mexico, even though that's technically still their traditional territory in the U.S. There's Yaqui's on green cards and they might overstay their visas, and all of a sudden they're getting deported back, even though that's their traditional land. And I don't think that that is just. Uh, So I think we still have a long way to go regarding this border.
0: So in terms of differences in language with the Yaqui tribe in Arizona, being less able to hold on to that language, and you yourself as speaker of indigenous languages, most indigenous languages in the United States and the world are endangered. So as someone who places so much emphasis on generational history and the thought of ancestors, how does Knowing that your language is endangered, knowing that most indigenous languages are endangered, how does that change language attitudes and learning attitudes in your communities?
2: I think it's our most important battle right now to save the language for indigenous peoples. I think that I'm grateful personally that we still have it because there are only eight tribes in the U.S. that have more than 5,000 speakers of their language today. And I come from two tribes that are part of those eight. So I'm very grateful that we still have fluent speakers because a lot of tribes don't really have that. They don't really have the numbers that they need to really make it integrated, which we could still do and which we still do at ceremonies. You hear language all the time, speak indigenous language. I still hear my parents, like my dad, my stepdad speaking in Yaki with someone at the ceremony and I'm like, wow, that's. I'm so happy that we have that. And it just makes me feel like i not, I don't want to take that for granted. We have the privilege to, to be able to connect with this generation that grew up fluent still. So I think that, that deepens it for me and makes me more motivated to use what we have and to not take that for granted and to pass that on to my children is really important as well for me.
0: In linguistics, there's sort of this rule of third generation language loss, which is by the time you get to the third generation, a minority language is lost and of course, Indigenous languages stand out from that because, you know, they've been incredibly resilient. So I was wondering how in your communities have you seen that sort of inaction? Is the language being transferred to kids? Do they have a passion for it? I'm wondering about the interplay between how significant your language is to your culture and your history and how that inspires people to keep learning it and keep the language alive.
2: Mm. I haven't heard of that third generation rule, but I can see how it would happen. I think, yeah, kids are very passionate when, when they grow up around ceremonies uh, specifically because of the ceremonies, we have our songs, we have our stories and that's where a lot of elders are sharing in the traditional language and I think the kids really get a lot there of why our language is so important and it really becomes part, like I said, like much more than a language it, for them, I think it starts becoming a part of their identity and their culture and their spirituality. And I think that that really is the driving force of our language. Yeah, the importance of kids growing up, going to ceremonies and having access to that, I think is probably the right now, I would say the foundation that I've seen for the transmission of language.
1: And what do you feel about, I mean, I've heard different perspectives on, you know, reformers in terms of the way historically Native American children would have been educated or you know, separated from their families. I don't know what your view is on that or how you've come to peace with it.
2: Well, I think it was tragic, you know, what happened. You knew that thousands of kids were stolen from their parents, from their communities, and they weren't allowed to speak their language. They weren't allowed to practice their culture. Their hair was cut and they were abused um, in boarding schools. The majority of them, when they've done studies and taken reports from these boarding schools and elders who were forced to go to boarding school, majority of them were sexually abused by the priests or the nuns uh, when they were kids there. A lot of them died. A lot of them had babies there from the sexual abuse and those babies were killed or those babies were taken away from them and just became part of American society the way that it was done it's horrifying and I still feel that in me like I had ancestors and grandparents great-grandparents who were forced to go to boarding school and uh it still is traumatic for me I still feel that intergenerational trauma of their experience and how the language was sort of beaten out of them I find that you know very very sad and I still feel like the U.S. and Canada and any other country that operated that, that educational system, including Australia, they have to take actions to reverse those impacts. I think they should be doing the opposite now, of what they did, for instance, they spent billions of billions of dollars in today's dollars on boarding school system. They should be spending billions and billions now on language revitalization. On reversing those impacts, there's a lot of reparations that need to be done. And for me personally, I understand that I am in a Western educational institution as well, and I'm not saying Western education is bad. I'm saying how you implemented it is bad. How you forced it on us is bad. It should always be a choice. It was my choice to go to school. A lot of people stay home today. That's totally fine. You know, that's their choice, and. You know, Western education for me, I'm going to, it's going to be a good thing. I'm going to use it to help my people. And a lot of people could have done that back then too. They just should have created a better way for them to do that. Where they didn't have to leave their culture and assimilate. And they didn't have the saying of the boarding school. One of the first U.S. boarding schools that was created was kill the Indian, save the man. It should have been like provide equal access to education without assimilation or something like that, you know? That's what I would have wanted.
1: I've, have you seen some models today that are really respectful of this, like bilingual or trilingual or education models within Indigenous communities? I don't know, you know what's going on in the, all the Indigenous communities around the world.
2: Yeah, no, well, schools on reservations, a lot of them are teaching language now. In our tribes, you know, a lot of the kids grow up learning the language in school, which is really cool. Those schools are usually on the reservation within the tribe, run by the tribe. Uh, I find that schools that are run by a tribe and people within the tribe, those are always really good models because they're by us and they're for us. And they integrate that just naturally. There's models in Australia that, I've, that I studied when I was over there, a boarding school model. So in Australia, because a lot of the communities are very remote, they, a lot of them don't have secondary schooling within the community. So a lot of the Indigenous youth, they have to leave the community to get an education, even in secondary school, like before college. So they're leaving as minors, and uh, that is very challenging. So still thousands of Aboriginal youth, you know, age 12 or whatever, traveling thousands of miles to some boarding school in in an Australian city away from that community. And some initiatives have started instead, you would think, this is obvious, they started building schools in their communities so they don't have to leave. And I think that's always the best option. But if someone, if a parent, you know, wants their kids to leave, it should always be a choice. It should never be someone coming and forcing a kid away or the system making it so they don't, they have to leave in order to get an education. Uh, this should always, I think, you know, be a balance between that.
1: I want to speak a little bit about the initiative that you created in your grandfather's name, the OES Supreme Medical Program.
2: Yeah, so that's going on right now. And that's why I'm in Boston. We have like eight native pre-meds. They studied at tribal and community colleges. And we found that those students who study at tribal and community colleges often have less access to these opportunities as opposed to students who study at state or private universities that are more well-funded and have, there's a lot more potential to to have access to to like mentors and labs and experiences that medical schools want. And yeah, so we created this. Um Oh yes, sir, was was one of my my great, you know, grandfathers. And he was the first Native American man, but the second Native American in, in general to become a physician. The first Native American physician was Susan LeFleche, a Native American woman. And so he he was shortly after her and He went to Boston University School of Medicine, and then he went back to our community to practice medicine. So we thought that was very beautiful, and his story was beautiful because he came from his community, got educated, and then went back and used it there. And so we created a program in that spirit that for Native American students, pre-medical students who were interested in getting education and then going back to their communities to use it.
1: And I know that you are... Studying to be a pediatrician. What drew you to that?
2: I just loved working with kids. I didn't know that I wanted to be a pediatrician, but you know, as you're going through rotation, some of them you just really get drawn to and you really start to enjoy. And I just really enjoyed working with kids of all ages. And I found it to be really, really pleasant and that I really wanted to get up and, <laughs> and wake up at 5am, seeing kids in the morning. <laughs>
1: I imagine that, that you're a very inspiring doctor in the making and that you'll bring a sense of light and be a great example for anyone who wants to follow in your footsteps. You can see it. It just comes across immediately. I want to ask, as you think about the future and those teachers and life lessons that were important to you and your memories of the beauty and wonder of the natural world, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember?
2: I think young people need to learn about the ancient and that needs to be valued as something that is not just in the past, as something that we can still learn from and is still alive today. And the ancient, it's not always things that are antiquated. Sometimes it's things that work because they've lasted forever and things that we shouldn't throw away. So that's the lesson that I would give
1: It's important. Progress is not just about moving forward, and we're taught that the only thing we should value is money. There's so much value, as you say, in every member of a community, even if they're not earning money, their're mothers or caregivers or healers, each and every member of society should be valued. So, Thank you, Victor Lopez-Carmen, for your commitment to make the world a better place for future generations and for all you have done to promote intergenerational awareness, remind us of our cultural responsibilities, for helping us understand that we are part of nature. We don't own it. We're all connected. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast.
2: Thank you.
0: The One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michelsky Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Maureen Knoll, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Maureen Knoll. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music was written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or to submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.